Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max. Thanks for tuning in for this episode of the show. We're back with part two with New York City Council Minority Leader Joe Borelli, a Republican of Staten Island. We're going to get more into some pressing issues facing the city, conservative momentum in New York politics, the key roughly half a dozen city council races to watch in this fall's general election. If you haven't been paying attention, there are elections this year. The entire city council would be on the ballot if every election was competitive, but there are many general election races happening this fall. Early voting will begin in late October, election day in November. Uh, So start looking up your local race and we'll get into some of the specifics of some of the most competitive ones. But there could be some surprises and everybody who's eligible to vote should be looking at whether they have anything on their ballot this fall. If you missed part one of this two part podcast, make sure to check it out after this one. You can listen to them in either order, I'm pretty sure. In the first discussion, we got into how Mayor Adams is doing the asylum seeker crisis broadly discussing why city government struggles and fails on so many issues, especially related to some things uh, about housing, of course, uh, and a bit on the new city budget, among other things. It was an interesting conversation, and we have a lot more to discuss here with Minority Leader Borelli. Before I bring him back on, in case you didn't catch part one, a quick bit of background on Minority Leader Borelli. He's a former state assembly member who has been in the city council since winning a special election in 2015 to represent the 51st city council district on the south shore of Staten Island. He's on the verge of securing a final two years in the council through this year's election that will be term limited from running again. As I said, all 51 seats in the city council on the ballot with new districts. A lot of the district lines have shifted. Some are very similar to what they have been. But there's new districts going into effect for this election that will then be the districts for governing moving forward, starting at the beginning of 2024. Uh, There are competitive elections in somewhere around 10 districts, about a half a dozen that are the most interesting. But there could be surprises, especially in what will surely be a low turnout election. As I mentioned, Councilmember Borelli won't be able to run again in 2025 when the full City government is back on the ballot, including the citywide offices and the borough presidencies. We'll ask him here today if he plans on maybe running for something in those elections. Stay tuned for that in just a moment. Councilmember Borelli leads a six-member Republican caucus in the city council, but it's also closely aligned with two conservative Democrats in what is the eight-member Common Sense Caucus. That might not seem like a lot in the 51-seat city council, but it's an important block of conservative votes. And it's been growing after the city's 2021 elections. It marked an increase after Republicans flipped a couple of seats in those elections from the prior term. And it is part of what is some degree here in New York and New York City of conservative and Republican momentum. That includes some of the results of recent city, state and federal level elections. Republicans flipped not only a couple of city council seats in 2021, but then a couple of Brooklyn state assembly seats in 2022. Of course, the several suburban congressional seats last year as well that helped flip the House from Democratic to Republican control. Nationally, a huge uh, political shift that has, has played out in the federal government. And one of those seats has a little bit of Queens, uh, of course, and is represented by Congressman George Santos. Maybe we'll touch on him in this conversation here. 
And even some races where Republicans didn't win, but put forward a better than expected showing, like in the 2022 governor's race, where Republican Lee Zeldin gave Democrat Kathy Hochul and other Democrats a real scare. And Zeldin at the top of the ticket certainly helped flip those House seats, those assembly seats, and put forward Republican performances that beat expectations in a number of ways. Not only will around a half a dozen of this year's city council general elections be very interesting, but then we, of course, quickly move into the 2024 election cycle in full. That will include the presidential election, another round of congressional races, state legislative races, and more with a lot of battleground contests in New York and control of the House of Representatives again on the line. Minority leader Borelli was a big booster of Lee Zeldin's gubernatorial campaign, helping to work on an independent expenditure effort on his behalf. He was also an early endorser of Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign. Uh, Maybe we'll get into the former president again for a couple minutes here, but we're really going to try to focus on the city council races and a few local issues. Uh, And Councilmember Borelli, of course, has some high hopes for those council elections this fall, and we will discuss those momentarily. There are several city council general election races expected to be very competitive, including one where we're going to start this discussion, where two sitting city council members are facing each other as a result of the post-census redistricting process. And there are some really uh, interesting other races like the brand new Brooklyn, quote unquote, Asian opportunity district in the city council drawn to reflect the shifting demographics of the city between 2010 and 2010, 20 censuses where Asian Americans were the fastest growing demographic group. And there's more opportunity here for Asian representation in the city council. Asian voters have proven recently to be something of a swing group moving rightward of late. So that's uh, important to this conversation as well. And the list of interesting general elections also includes a race in Queens, happens to be in my home district where I grew up, the 19th, uh, which includes uh, Whitestone and surrounding areas, uh, and some interesting races in the Bronx and elsewhere we'll get into in a moment. Part two of my conversation with New York City Council Minority Leader Joe Borelli in just a moment. Quickly, if you've missed, missed any recent episodes of the show, find them all at Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts along with part one with Councilmember Borelli, which you should definitely check out if you haven't yet. Recent guests have included public advocate Jamani Williams, the new leaders of the New York City Housing Authority, the city's public housing, uh, the new CEO, the new board chair, really interesting discussion about the present and future of public housing in the city. I've also recently been joined by the city council's land use committee chair, Councilmember Rafael Salamanca of the Bronx, and by the co-chairs of the New York City Council Progressive Caucus, council members Shahana Hanif and Lincoln Ressler. So a variety of interesting guests and perspectives recently. But let's bring back on New York City Council Minority Leader Joe Borelli, who represents the 51st City Council District on the South Shore of Staten Island. He's the longest serving city council member, having been elected in a special election in 2015, re-elected in 2017 and 2021 seeking his final two years in the council here in 2023 in the election. He did run in 2019 in a special public advocate election, losing to Jamani Williams in that race, but putting forward an interesting platform, including uh, an interest in gutting the public advocate position, which some of his 
fellow Common Sense Caucus members are looking to do yet again here in 2023. So we'll get into that. Uh, Councilmember Borelli, thanks for joining me. How are you? I am well. By, by the way, I love the uh, feedback and, and some of the haterade uh, we've gotten from part one. So hopefully this continues to be interesting and uh, and the source of some good conversations uh, amongst New York politicos. Excellent. Absolutely. Yeah, I've gotten some private and public feedback on part one and everybody should check it out and let us know what you think. We, you know, I wanted to get into the elections. That's why we're doing part two. We had just what turned out to be a very interesting conversation about uh, a lot about certain certain issues facing the city, like the asylum seeker crisis, but also a broad discussion about how Mayor Adams is doing, running city government and his challenges, why there's so many problems getting things done in New York City, especially as it relates to housing and development. So interesting stuff in part one of this conversation. So let's dig into the elections that are coming up this fall. Um, as I mentioned, we have one race to start with here that's probably got to be the most high profile because there's two sitting city council members facing each other that's in the newly drawn city council district 47 in brooklyn that's sitting democratic city council member justin brannon and sitting republican city council member ari kagan facing each other in this new district now council member kagan switched from being a democrat to a republican last year joined your caucus say a little bit about the dynamics of that race what you're watching for there, and how fully is the New York City sort of Republican establishment behind Councilmember Kagan, given that he was recently a Democrat, given that many of you Republicans have had a good working relationship with Councilmember Brannon, who chairs the Finance Committee in the council. What's the sort of big picture look at that race that, that you're thinking about here as we enter the what are going to be a very intense few months before Election Day? Well, it is certainly the marquee race, uh, and I anticipate that this will be the race that that gets the most coverage and most interest uh, from people just uh, observing the the, the 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 workings of politics uh, in November. I, I think you're right. I think uh, Councilmember Kagan has a little bit of work to do to uh, solidify some some personal relationships with uh, some uh, other elected officials. I mean, you know, he was a Democrat, and as a Democrat, he occasionally you know threw some grenades uh, and stuff like that, and that's fine. Um, the reality is for, for someone like me who, who thinks about the bigger picture, um, I, I would rather there be 100 Ari Kagans than than people who, who uh, you know, are just set in their ways and, and might not consider switching parties. I mean, the reason the assembly picked up three seats in southern Brooklyn, the reason uh, that we won uh, Ina Vernikoff's seat in 2020 uh, was because of people uh, – 2021, excuse me – uh, was because people just got sick of the the uh, repetitive nonsense that oftentimes they hear from the Democratic Party, most notably on public safety. Uh, then you factor in uh, how well Zeldin did uh, in these same areas, and I think you're going to see uh, the momentum shift continue in this direction. Uh, you know, J Justin has been a very uh, effective council member on many issues, but the district has changed. Uh, he now has a lot of Russian speakers. He now has a lot of people he did not represent. So even though he could rightfully take credit for a, a lot of uh, good stuff he's done, uh, meat and potato issues, fixing the potholes, all those things, it, it's going to be difficult for him to, to make the case to especially these Russian speakers uh, that the Democratic Party is the right future for them and their families. It's a very interesting new city council district 47. 
It has a lot of Council Member Brannon's Bay Ridge base or, or all of it, basically. But then it extends into Coney Island and some of the areas that Council Member Kagan has been representing. Now, turnout in these elections is going to be low. No question about it. There's but Ben, no- Ben, look at look at also you have Congresswoman Maliotakis in a big chunk of this area. You mm-hmm. have uh, Assemblyman Tenusis. Uh, this is one of the few areas of the city where you actually have a, a death chart of Republican representation. And those Republican officials, if they get engaged here, could absolutely help uh, draw attention to Councilmember Kagan's candidacy, help him with fundraising and and all and get out the vote efforts and all that stuff that's needed. It'll be very interesting to see what kind of uh, high profile Democrats Councilmember Brandon tries to bring into the race and who would actually be helpful to him in this district. You know, there were always questions in some of these southern Brooklyn districts about which high profile Democrats are actually popular and helpful or not. In uh, the prior race, but the districts have changed in the prior race to keep his seat. Councilmember Brandon had to run ahead of Eric Adams in that race. Um, and so, you know, that was interesting. And, and even more of a drag on Brandon's candidacy prior was Bill de Blasio, who was less popular in some of these areas. So uh, really interesting stuff. This new district, the new council district 47, if you Uh, Again, we don't know who's going to turn out because there's no marquee citywide or statewide races on the ballot here, no congressional races. But if you look at uh, per the redistricting in you website uh, from the CUNY Graduate Center's uh, mapping project, if you look at this new district, City Council District 47, in the boundaries of this district in the 2021 mayoral race, there were more votes for Curtis Lewa by a very narrow margin, but more votes for Curtis Lewa than Eric Adams. So this is this is definitely an area where Republicans can do well, have done well. Uh, it was a forty seven point eight percent to forty seven point three percent Lewa to Adams margin within the boundaries of this new district, according to the redistricting and new website from the CUNY Graduate Center. So uh, uh, basically, you know, in a sense, this looks like a toss up race, right? Yeah, and, and the Zeldin numbers that, that, that I prefer to use are, are, are equally mm-hmm. good. Um, and you know, you know me, I, I don't like to compare myself to a guy who dresses like a starboard buoy. Uh, so the, the Sleewin numbers are, are really not significant to me. Um, but okay. the, the Zeldin numbers, uh, I, I think, are. The momentum there is so clear. Uh, it's clear yep. based on all the previous races. Uh, and uh, Ari Kagan is, is really one of the better campaigners I've ever seen. He's someone who will show up to every single event. Um, he's knocking on doors uh, in the heart uh, of what can be considered Brandon's district. And he's going to give him a run for his money, if not outright win. I'm, I'm yeah. just very I mean, confident this, in this race. Yeah, th- I mean, this is this is obviously something of a toss up in in the new District 47 between two sitting council members. In part one of our discussion, we left off talking about the new city budget. And people should, again, go back and listen to part one after this if they haven't yet. And one of the things I noted that that relates to this race is that in your common sense caucus of Republicans and conservative Democrats, you have eight members, seven of the eight voted for the new city budget. The one no vote was Council Member Kagan. And it's still not totally clear why he voted no on the budget. There's obviously implications because Council Member Brannon is the finance chair that sort of this is like a very you know, Brannon uh, helped, you know, helped design the budget. He's the finance chair of the city council. This is sort of has his fingerprints all over it. So for Kagan to run against him in the election, he's, you know, he can draw more of a discrepancy between the two. But that does get difficult when 
the seven other members of the Common Sense Caucus voted for the budget. Do you can do you can you explain why Councilmember Kagan voted against this budget? And do you think that was a mistake? Did he ask for your guidance on that? What, what well, happened? If, if I was Ari Kagan's hypothetical consultant, uh, I would be telling him to look at the number of uh, the dollar amount that that he was able to bring home uh, for his district this budget, compare it to the dollar amount you got last budget, and then use that as a wedge to say, look, the speaker cut my funding. The finance chair, who happens to be Justin Brannon, uh, cut my funding. Can you believe they voted? Uh, can you believe they voted to to essentially defund the district we're running in? That's how I would have played it. That's not necessarily how he played it. And, uh, you know, it, it is what it is at this point, And we'll see how the chips fall. Part of the focus on this race and basically every other that we're going to discuss here in what could be swing city council districts will will reflect a lot on public safety, police funding, the new contract for police officers that the Adams administration negotiated Um this budget reflects those raises for the rank and file police officers in the PBA. Um, these these are some of the wedge issues that will be discussed a lot here. And one of the questions for Councilmember Kagan is, why would you vote against a budget that does include the increases for police officers if sort of a key tenant of his campaign is that Justin Brannon is not as supportive of the police as he should be? It's a, well, by it's this a, same it's a by, by, by this. Yeah, sure. But by this same measure, then the Progressive Caucus voted against raises for teachers and fill in the blank of any other union. I mean, uh, look, it's campaign season. So everyone's going to try to spin uh, their own take on the budget, however they possibly can, to make it effective and and to make it set into the minds of voters. That's really all you're seeing there. Voting yes or no on the budget has no impact on the contract because the contract is collectively bargained. Um, The money money was spent the minute the contract was signed, frankly. Did you tell him that he probably shouldn't vote no on this budget or did you not have that level of conversation oh ben secession is such a great movement uh to talk about <laughs> i can't wait to discuss uh, staten island's uh, independence uh-huh. It's, uh-huh. it's fantastic all right we'll get into that later okay any other thoughts on that race between the two city council members before we move on no i think i think people are going to be surprised i think just uh, uh ari has momentum i, I just I, I don't see it any other way it's one of these interesting districts like some of these others we're going to talk about where like so many places across the city other than the district you represent and a couple and just a couple of others democratic enrollment vastly outpaces republican enrollment and very often the blank voters the unaffiliated party voters are ahead of republicans in terms of the registration yet republicans regularly outperform those enrollment numbers what do you make of that what, what like what's at the root of that trend is it that there's just more of this movement to people who don't really want to be part of either party, but they're still largely Republican voters. I, th- I think there's some people who just enrolled a long time ago in the Democratic Party, um, who the party has now left them. The party has gone further left than they would be comfortable with. So they've changed, uh, they, they've changed their voting pattern. Uh, and if there aren't competitive Republican primaries, which there really aren't in a lot of these races, uh, you're not going to see big pushes to. And this is this is, I guess, my fault, right? I mean, this is something I should be taking responsibility for. But you're not going to see big pushes to change people's voting registrations to Republicans, both by candidates and parties themselves, you know, be, before the primary, and by just people who say, oh, "I kind of like that guy," or "I kind of like that girl," I want to vote for them or against them or whatever. Let me switch my party registration. Mm-hmm. So you just you just don't have that. Uh, the fact that we still have the competitive general elections in these areas and people can still vote regardless of their enrollment, I, I think is how it plays out. Yeah. 
in this district, this new city council district 47, this race between Democrat Justin Brandon, Republican Ari Kagan, uh, as I mentioned, in the 2021 mayoral race, it was a very narrow Sliwa area, which again was probably even more so for um, Zeldin over Hochul, as you said, I don't have that number in front of me. But in terms of the party enrollment, uh, it's, I mean, it, it's remarkable. It's, it is a lot of Democrats, but they are the more moderate to conservative Democrats who have very likely been voting a lot of Republicans lately. Um, you have roughly 54,000 Democrats in that district to 23,000 no party to 17,000 Republicans. So very, very interesting there. And a lot of these swing district trends playing out in that district um, and, and will be very interesting. Uh, and, you know, I think I mean, I think one of the most fascinating things about all of these districts we're talking about in all of these elections before we move into another specific one is turnout is obviously always a factor. But in these low turnout off year elections, what do you think makes the biggest difference here in turnout? Just broadly speaking, in these upcoming elections, is it how people are feeling about the direction of the city? Is it hangover angst from the pandemic and the increase in crime? Is it just which candidates are able to really reach the voters in the most systematic data-driven way? What, what's, what do you think the biggest? I, I think this is the turn? most, I think this is the most uh, important question you've asked so far. Uh, and to compare it to the Brannon Kagan um, race, I think anger is the biggest determining factor. Anger motivates people to vote. So who are angrier constituents? Are they Justin Brannon, uh, Justin Brannon voters or are they Ari Kagan voters? I would say, you know, two to one, they're Ari Kagan voters uh, who are going to be much more um, um, interested uh, personally in voting. That said, you know, that gets combated by, uh, you know, organized pull operations by labor and progressives and, and stuff like that, which which we're going to see. Um, absent those efforts, I think Kagan wins no problem. Interesting. What's um, well, let's let's move into this uh, this other district, this new, quote unquote, Asian opportunity district, District 43 in Brooklyn. This is a district that uh, is had to be a little bit creatively drawn, uh, but it includes some large populations of Asian American voters. Um, it's got parts of Sunset Park, Bensonhurst, Gravesend, Bath Beach. Um, you have a really interesting dynamic that I want to start off with here, where you have a Democrat, Susan Zhuang, Republican, Yang Tan, and then you have a conservative party candidate staying on the ballot, Vito LaBella, who could cost the Republican candidate this race. So before we get into anything else, what's going on there? Why is the conservative candidate, Vito LaBella, staying in the race? And do you think that's going to cost your party a win here? It, it very well can. I mean, and, and we have to be clear. I mean, the, the Republican and conservative parties, and I, I get along with them. We, we work well together. But they backed uh, someone initially uh, for this seat who decided at the last possible minute not to run. Uh, then uh, they decided that despite the fact that being uh, a, a, an overwhelming Asian district, they're going to run someone who's not Asian. And I, I credit anybody who puts their name on the ballot and works hard in campaigns. Uh, and Vito LaBella did pretty good uh, in his last outing. But it's a tough race uh, when you don't have the Republican line. I mean, if you can't get the Republican line in a district that Sliwa and Zeldin won, it's 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 going to be an impossibility to actually win. 
the good news for me is that even the Democrat, uh, should she win, um, has committed publicly to joining the Common Sense Caucus. So I think the council mm-hmm. gets another moderate or conservative member, regardless of the outcome of this race. I, I just don't see why they had to keep um, Vito LaBella in or, or pressure him to stay in the race. It doesn't help anyone. It doesn't help long term. Uh, and um, unfortunately, it is the current situation. This is a district, again, I'm looking at sort of the, the most recent city election in the 2021 mayoral election. In the lines of this district, according to the Redistricting U website from the CUNY Graduate Center, Curtis Leo won this district by a wide margin against yep. Eric Adams, 60% to 35%. So this is not the close one of the Brandon Kagan matchup. This is a district oh, where, and where imagine, Republic, we, yeah. imagine we ran someone competent too for mayor, uh, and not, and not this, this traffic cone of a human. Um, you know, it, it, <laughs> I wish there were more districts like this, uh, where, where we were able to get this uh, depth. So there's still time for Vito LaBella and the conservative party to not run the race competitively and back the Republican nominee. Are you trying to uh, get the conservative party behind Ying Tan here? Is that something that's an ongoing conversation? It's obviously only mid-August. This, you know, this race won't, people won't really be paying attention in, until October. Um, what's it was the an ongoing conversation. conversation. Uh, yeah. It was an ongoing conversation up until the deadline passed for, for him to uh, deny the uh, nomination. Uh, and now at this point, uh, I'm not sure if, if he has or will ever qualify for matching funds. Um, so it's, it's, um, it's not like they could be too effective, but you know the, the the fear is that they can be just effective enough. Right. I mean, this this election could come down to a very small number of votes. It will. I, I, th- so I think it's it, going. To. I think it's. Yeah. I think it certainly will. I mean, right. I mean, Vito Labella could get a five hundred to a thousand votes and be a spoiler in this district. Um, could be a hundred hundred votes and be a spoiler. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Um, but say a little bit about what this district represents. It, it, it clearly is one of, if not the most pressing example of the question of Asian American voters moving rightward, at least temporarily, indefinitely. Perhaps it's more of a permanent swing. What's going on there from your perspective? Well, we've seen it on Staten Island uh, in the New York neighborhood for quite some time and, and, and Bull's Head and other neighborhoods where uh, we've seen a massive influx uh, of uh, Asian people from all different parts of Asia, um, you know, including including South Asia, um, et cetera, who have re-registered as voters on Staten Island and have either re-registered as Republican or have decided they're going to just start voting Republican. So it wasn't a surprise for, for, for me, uh, who, who's sort of been tracking this. Same, same thing, frankly, with Russian speakers who, who have moved to Staten Island over the years. Uh, they've become uh, you know, pretty loyal Republican Party members uh, over the years. So I, I just think it's a, it's a growing trend. I think it, it has something to do with public safety, specifically perhaps hate crimes. I think it has uh, a lot to do with uh, the Chancellor Carranza and, and Bill de Blasio, basically, uh, for lack of, of, a, of a better way of putting it, saying you know certain high schools have too many Asians. I mean, that's that's the argument. Um, and I think you've, you've sort of lost a generation of Asian parents who have put a tremendous amount of focus into their children uh, and, and felt like they were being told um, that the opportunities would be diminished for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, those those seem to be the two top issues that people repeatedly raised. That and, have... Ending ending gifted and talented programs. I mean, Richard Carranza cost, in my opinion, uh, the Democratic Party a lot of Asian votes. 
well, he wasn't obviously acting on his own. That, that goes back to some of the policies that, that, as you mentioned, Mayor de Blasio was was supportive of as well. Um, or first and foremost, if he was, you know. But he was he was judgmental and nasty about it. Oh, in terms of, of Chancellor Carranza's public presentation of some of the ideas and Correct. how he talked about it. Gotcha. Yep. Correct. Gotcha. gotcha. Okay. That's interesting. Um, so, you know, I, I also think in both those groups you mentioned, uh, you know, there's also this this fine line between how a lot of Democrats have been talking about democratic socialism and mostly referring to sort of Western European democratic socialism but the way that some of the conversation has also been about more totalitarian communism and some of the, you know, the background countries from some of these recent immigrants or not even that recent immigrants as well coming out of the USSR and other places where they don't want to hear a lot of talk about whether it's socialism or communism. And of course, folks on your side of the aisle have been good about blurring, blurring those all together into one, uh, you know, one big package. But that that seems to be at the root of some of this as well. Right. Yeah, I, I suppose. I mean, uh, Republicans have been winning uh, votes uh, opposing socialism, communism, and, and Bolshevism, Leninism, whatever, whatever you want to call it, uh, for you know, forty years now. I suppose mm-hmm. it seems like the Democratic Socialists and their allies have been just particularly unsuccessful about trying to frame what their philosophy is. Would you agree with that? Or Republicans are particularly good at framing it, you know, in a way that. Uh, scares a lot of voters. How, how do you sort of think about that? Because we've obviously seen this rising tide of demo, you know, self-identified democratic socialists elected to the state legislature, for example. I, I, I think it's because oftentimes their ideas get parodied. Um, and I'll give you an example. And I'll mention one name and I'll speak favorably of her and you're not going to expect it. I'm going to, I'm going to mention Tiffany Caban. Um, Queen City Council. City Council Member Caban. For all I disagree with her about, like on you know almost everything, uh, I have to credit her in the sense that she constantly stays focused on issues that matter to people. Um, and again, I, I, you know, the, the biggest knocks against her are some of the the sillier things that she did with the with the uh, flyer on. Uh, I forget what the flyer was, but it was about how to uh, you know not call the police if you're being attacked. But th- that's what I mean. It's it's it's. It's when people lose focus of the big picture issues and they fall into these these traps of like just silly ideas. Same thing with the ice cream truck ban. I mean, you you really you really can't tell someone that the ice cream truck is like killing them or like really causing enough CO2 to change the planet. Like if we, like, like, like that's but that that's yeah. that's what it just gives us such an opening to say. Like how stupid some of the policies are. Even let me, though let, me, let me ask picture. you about it. You raised this in part yeah. one of our conversation, too. Let me ask you about this because I, I find this really interesting. Yeah. So before Councilmember Ressler, who is one of the co-chairs of the Progressive Caucus, uh, put forward this bill around, uh, you know, it, it's a fairly long timeline I don't have in front of me, banning the running of the engines in the ice cream trucks that, you know, help them make the ice cream as they're sitting, you know, outside the playgrounds and the parks and such in schools um, or wherever they are. Uh, Before that, even I'm walking around. I know you have younger kids, too. I have a six year old. When I go to pick him up from school or after school or the or or camp or whatever, there's almost always at least one ice cream truck sitting there idling. Right. And you you notice it. I mean, I do at least. And I, I found it fascinating because sometimes if you walk too close, it, it's like, you know, some dirty air in your face. Now, it's not something where I thought to myself, oh, I'm going to go call somebody and get a ban on these things. But 
how do Democrats say, you know what, this is sort of dirtying the air near a school, near a park, near a playground. Let's try to thoughtfully phase these things out and replace them with some sort of clean running engine without proposing some sort of phase out. And immediately folks like yourself are so good at jumping on this and saying they want to ban ice cream trucks. Yeah, I mean, th- three years is, is a pretty, political warfare, right? Th- three years is a pretty short term for, for okay. you to maybe pay off the truck that you haven't been paid off yet, right? I mean, you finance these things six years, 10 years. Um, so you may not even have a truck paid off that you're now banned from from driving. I mean, that that's sort of the problem of the small business owner. The, the bigger problem, though, in, in the sort of political football component of it is no one actually believes that you're going to save the planet because you're eliminating the ice cream man, especially, by the way, when you're only targeting the ice cream truck and not the not the if you, you know me, Ben. So, you know, every single day I'm at City Hall, I, I only eat the halal card on Park Place. Like that's mm-hmm. where I eat every almost every single day. But that guy has a, a fridge operating. Uh, the, the, the taco trucks are operating a fridge and they're burning fossil fuels. But for some reason, he's only he's only going after the ice cream man. It just makes for, for just such a great political narrative to say, where are these priorities? Same thing so, with so, the pizza ovens. Ben, come on, the pizza, the pizza ovens. But pizza ovens is a similar thing. It's, it's like there's maybe 40 or 50 um, pizza ovens that are affected by this. And it's not just pizza ovens. Uh, we, we, we found in my office uh, some Israeli restaurants and some Argentine steakhouses, all these wonderful things that make New York great. That, by the way, no one is saying, no one is saying that going forward, when this restaurant owner decides to put a new kitchen in and they go to you know do permits and put a new chimney and a flue in, no one's saying that at that point, we shouldn't take the steps necessary to, to clean the air a little bit as it's going out. We just don't think you should force this person to do it now after they follow the rules and, and, and essentially should be grandfathered in. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. It, just makes, I mean, it, it I, makes for I, such stupid narrative. But it, it, this is where this is where and going back to Tiffany Caban, who more often than not focuses on progressive issues, but ones that really do matter to people. And I give her credit for that. Um, it's it's when they get to these sideshow issues that you know the new york post of the world and the fox news of the world and etc can just jump on it and people can see plainly how silly it is and then the explanation of this is saving the planet just doesn't add up you know look i mean this is this again is where you're really good at shaping the narrative because the argument can easily be well we want to make the air a little cleaner outside of the schools and the parks and the playgrounds where the ice cream trucks are so focused I would support about would, by the way, I support legislation banning the ice cream truck from coming, you know, by the soccer fields and schools so my kids don't ask for it. That's a yeah. different argument. But why aren't we I, I forget that park. Was it McCarran Park in uh in, in Brooklyn where there's a lot of soccer being played? You mm-hmm. go there any single Saturday or Sunday, and, and people don't believe me that I actually go to some of these places because they think I'm just a you know a, a provincial from Staten Island. Uh-huh. But some of the best food and some of the most interesting things are happening in New York City on the side of soccer fields being cooked. Like I, you know, yes, is that is that slightly polluting the air? Sure. But like why would we want to sacrifice Things that make New York City on one end of the spectrum slightly less tolerable, on another end of the spectrum, fantastic. And the reason why we live here. Why are we going after those things? Um, it, I mean, obviously, there's this really interesting uh, uh, I, I told you we're going to go off on a tangent, by the way. Well, of this course, is great. Of course. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's, there's so much more to discuss here, obviously. But, I mean, it's really interesting, too, because it's this, you know, it's this sort of natural political imbalance to, you know, 
at play where, for the most part, Republicans and conservatives aren't thinking about how much stuff they can change, right? So you have Democrats and progressives like cooking up a lot of stuff like how do we, you know, how do we clean the air in this way and how do we do this and how do we do that? And so it's just sort of like one out of every, you know, so many of these can become this viral issue where, as you say, it's potentially not a very well thought through political act, even if it has. But, some- but they also have real world consequences on issues we care about. And in part one, I referenced uh, this, this particular project um, that that it were held up now for four years going on five. And we actually got some feedback about it. You know, the, the, the major issue holding it up is whether the city takes title to a street that's going to be mapped mm-hmm. or the developer keeps title and runs it under an HOA. Now, if the city takes title to it, they have to dig the sewers much deeper. It's a whole thing. It's going to cost them way, way, way more money, uh, almost to the point where the houses won't be marketable at that price because of the cost the developer had to do to build them. It's, it's you know, ba- basic economics. And when you look at the actual issue, nobody cares whether the street is owned by the city or an HOA. HOAs work all over the country. Nobody mm-hmm. cares except for the people who live there, who will live there eventually. And yet, like, we have these city bureaucracies just just draining themselves of time and, and money and resources to basically stop this project because of the amount of time it's taking when no one in the bureaucracy is ever going to be faced by any challenge that comes from the ownership of these streets. They, they will never care. They'll go on. They'll retire. Their life will move on. And – it will never matter to anyone except for the person who buys the house or the townhouse or the unit, whatever it is, who may actually say, I actually like the fact that this is kind of a private street that we could, you know, we could control our own parking, et cetera. It's just bizarre. It's bizarre, Ben. So let me ask you this to flip it, to flip it back to you. You're the city council member in the area. Why have you not been able to break the stalemate on this? Why have you not been able to get the city bureaucracy you know, I mean, this is part of the constituent services. This is part of the district, you know, focus that you have and many council members have where the, these are some of the things that you are, you know, known for and supposed to be on top of, which is somebody comes to you with a district focused issue. And that's part of going to the local city council members saying, council member Borelli, you got to get this backlog addressed or you got to make the wheels move again because they're totally, you know, they're totally stuck in motion in the bureaucracy. You got to get the mayor's ear. So the mayor then goes from top down. How come you haven't been able to do that in this situation? So I have in this particular case, I have done everything you suggested. And and the moment this came to the city council, it was expedited, rushed as quick as the council could legally approve of this development. It, it was done. Uh, and, you know, since that moment and before that moment, just countless hours, countless hours of time in meetings, uh, not just with me, but with the, with the community board uh, and, and, and basically all stakeholders. And to be honest, I don't know the answer, but, but I can see the problem. The problem is that one agency will say it has to do this and that will conflict with another agency say, oh, but it has to be that. And those two things don't actually add up to a practical development that could be, number one, economically feasible – Number two, marketable to to someone who wants to buy it. And number three, and, and not, not last but at least, but amenable to the elected officials whose job it is uh, to regulate what goes where. Mm-hmm. Moving on. If, if, I, if I had the solution, 
you yeah, know, you would have, the, yeah. the private sector right now would be knocking on my door uh, trying to figure out a way for me to help them build more development in New York City. <laughs> I just wish I had it off the top of my head. We talked, let's get back to these city council races. We talked about the new District 47 in Brooklyn, two sitting council members, Justin Brandon, the Democrat, Ari Kagan, the Republican facing each other. We talked a little bit about the new District 43, uh, wide open race, no incumbent. We talked about that. Those are two obvious focus races for you in the Republican and, you know, uh, common sense caucus leadership role you're in looking at the political landscape of this year's city council races. What's number three behind that? You obviously have a race in Queens where it's the race in Queens. It it, it is. It it Uh is Vicky Palladino versus Tony Avella. I mean, this is. I, I believe this actually is the, the number two marquee race because you have um, essentially two incumbents. I mean, Tony, uh, you know, was in the Senate and stuff like that, but you essentially have two incumbents, uh, um, and you have um, two people. And I love Vicky, and I love her, but she she has the ability to to make people really agitated, and uh, both for and against her. And then you have Tony Avella, whom I've only encountered people agitated against him. So you have this really interesting race uh, where I think it's going to be punches flying, mm-hmm. and I, you know I'll never mention names. Uh, you know I, I won't I won't I won't throw anyone under the bus. But in my time in Albany and my time in the council and dealing with Queens politicians, I haven't met one single Democrat from Queens who has told me I like that Tony Avella guy. I can't wait to support him. We need him in the council. We need him in the Senate. Let me be, be behind him. Not not one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, listen. Well, first of all, it is worth saying in Tony Fellow's event, he's won a lot of elections. So some people like him. Some people have voted for him a lot of times. That being said, he was a member of the Independent Democratic Conference in the state Senate. Uh, John Liu came along, defeated him in the primary a few years ago. Uh, former state senator and former council member of Vela ran for this city council seat and lost very narrowly in 2021 to Vicky Palladino. So that was how this seat flipped to Republican hands, having been held by uh, Paul Vallone previously. So Vicky Palladino wins this race very narrowly against Avella in 2021, boosts your numbers in the GOP caucus. This is uh, Northeast Queens, uh, as I said, Whitestone and surrounding areas, Bayside, et cetera. Um, both candidates, lightning rods of sorts, as you mentioned. Uh, any sense of what is going to be key here. Oh, I'll also mention to your point, many Democrats endorsed candidates other than Tony Avella in the primary that he just narrowly won. Uh, but Democrats are probably going to rally around him to try to flip this seat back to Democratic hands. What's this race going to come down to, you think? I, I don't see that happening. I don't see any Democrats endorsing Vicky Palladino. Oh, don't, yeah. don't get me wrong. Yeah, I, I just don't see uh, anyone rushing to rally behind him. Uh, to, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think the, the the secret truth that some Democrats may not like is that a lot of them uh, in that part of Queens actually have a good working relationship with, with Vicky uh, and find her quite you know pleasurable to deal with. Uh, and if you go around City Hall, you'll find that that's uh, a consensus uh, that maybe her public personality is not the same as her private personality, which she would be uh, not the first politician, including myself, by the way, uh, who, who sort of, uh, you know, sometimes plays it up uh, when they're on public display. So I, I, I really fascinating. do. I don't you know, I don't I don't know Councilmember Palladino well enough to, to know that. But that's a very that's very interesting. I, I would say I, I would I, say you play it up 
far less than she does then if that's if you're both playing it up a little bit sometimes in public well beauty is in the eye of the beholder ben mm-hmm. but 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 i will say this uh stay tuned to see uh how few democrats actually come out to endorse tony avella i think it's mm-hmm. going to be cricket city um and, and so that's gonna, it, it sounds like he's not someone you'd be welcoming into the common sense caucus if he wins uh, I mean, he's welcome to join. I mean, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm happy to 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 ally with anyone who wants. And I will give him credit. He voted against the big tax hike uh, in 2003, I think it was. Uh-huh. Um, I, I will give him credit for that. So this is but, another uh, district. I'm, I'm not I'm not cleaning off a chair for him or anything like that. Yeah, this is another district where Democratic enrollment far outpaces Republican enrollment, but it seems a lot of moderate to conservative Democrats because this was a district. Uh, this the city council district 19, the new under the new lines, which I don't think are much changed. Um, Curtis Lewa outran Eric Adams there, uh, almost 60 percent to 37 percent. So this is definitely a district where Republican Vicky Palladino has a good shot to hold the seat. I got to ask you. And, uh, and wait, hold, on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. That sentiment is only burning deeper uh, with uh, the the opening of a shelter of a thousand people or more than that at Creedmoor. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the this is the heart of local law ninety seven, which I'm, I'm assuming uh, um, uh, Tony Avella has supported in different forms in the Senate and the Council. But this is the heart of local law 97 enforcement country where you're telling all these people in condos and co-ops that live in dated buildings that they're going to have to come up with thousands more dollars every single year. I mean, so I, I would say that the, the, the Sliwa remnants have only you know, b- become stronger over the last year. Let me ask you, though, there's been some recent press coverage. Uh, Councilmember Palladino has been, uh, you know, someone who, like many Republicans, has run on a very strong sort of uh, law and order platform, uh, you know, roll back the criminal justice reforms, tougher policing, et cetera. And then there's been multiple reports that her son slash spokesperson has been uh, at least parking, if not driving around in a car with illegal plates that she may be illegally renting out part of her house. Is there a is there a big hypocrisy issue that she needs to deal with there on the law and order front? I don't think there's going to be a lot of hypocrisy. I mean, she's not the first person to be confronted with a son who doesn't always, uh, you know, clean up after himself or necessarily do the right thing. And perhaps it sounds like that's all this is. Um, on the the illegal hotel stuff, Ben, I think you know how to get my personal address, which you can. You should go look. At, and I think I might have told you this yesterday in private, where I had these building inspectors at my house in, investigating uh, an illegal hotel that was was happening in my own house. Um, we have the paperwork to prove it. It's on the building information system. So I, I just think that people oftentimes file these complaints just to put them on record, just to basically say you know, someone's doing something wrong. So I'm not, I'm not overly concerned about it. Um, you know, I guess some things could have been probably handled a little better, but, mm-hmm. but that's, I don't think it's going to have too much resonation with the voters. Like I said, who are saying, okay, so I don't like something Vicky said, or maybe something I read about her in the paper, but I also don't want to spend $3,000 more a year to comply with local law 97. Mm-hmm. It does sound like um, a very, very different situation for her than what you might have been dealing with, with what seems like someone filing, you know, a false 311 complaint or something like that against you, whereas uh, there's a lot of uh, Department of Buildings complaints going back many years about her Whitestone home. And there's Gothamist detailed a, a whole bunch of stuff there, but we won't go further into that now. 
Um, okay, so we've got the two Brooklyn districts we talked about. We've got District 19 in Queens, where you uh, clearly have a competitive race on your hands with Palladino trying to hold that seat against former Senator and Councilmember Avella, uh, who she narrowly defeated two years ago. Is the East Bronx District 13 next on the list of top priorities for you, or is there a different race that we should we yep. should touch on? Uh, nope, nope. Uh, 13 is definitely on the list. Uh, you have someone... Um, uh, who had, ran a great primary, uh, someone who raised a, a ton of money, raised more money than, than most candidates who run as Republican in the Bronx. Uh, the district is carved, you know, interestingly in a way that, that favors a Republican, a Republican candidate or gives them more uh, leverage than we've ever had in the past. Uh, and as much as I might, you know, personally like, uh, Margie Velasquez, uh, she has made some votes and done some things that have angered some of her constituents. All right. So I this, mean, we, we, we all have, but, <laughs> but, but there seems to be some, some visceral, uh, anti-Marge, uh, sentiment in the district that is going to materialize in, in Christie perhaps winning. So this is, um, sitting democratic incumbent Marjorie Velasquez, Eastern Bronx seat, uh, Throgs Neck, Morris Park, Pelham Bay, uh, facing Republican Christy Marmorado in the general election. What you're getting at, I believe, most notably is Velasquez approving a rezoning in her district that will allow more housing and economic development in a stretch. Now, this goes directly back to stuff we were talking about in part one. How can you talk in one, you know, one sense about uh, you know, New York government is broken. The Democrats running it aren't able to even run it well enough to get, you know, more housing development, more economic development. You have a sitting city council member here who knows she's facing some real not in my backyard opposition in this rezoning, winds up supporting it, wins her Democratic primary where this was an issue by a pretty wide margin. But this is going to be the number one issue that the Republican nominee is attacking her on, most likely. Because it's the number one issue that 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 has resonated with voters. I mean, I, I actually have a, a family in the district. My wife's cousins live there, uh, and and they're pissed. I mean, every city that that I've ever encountered. And by the way, I'm also the chairman of the National Conference of Republican Mayors and Council Members, so I get to visit a lot of cities and, and deal with a lot of my colleagues uh, in different parts of the country. But every city outside of Houston and Dallas and some other places has zoning. You know, where you have higher density residential neighborhoods, you have manufacturing areas, you have commercial, you have low density, high density. Mm -hmm. You have all that. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with saying that this is going to be a lower density area. It might be uh, in, in the in the first ring of suburbs or whatever the case may be. And people have to remember that most people who moved to perhaps that part of the Bronx probably came from another part of the city who said, I still want to live and be part of New York City, but I also want to live in a slightly different neighborhood, in a slightly different housing stock. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, so when, when you've made a lifetime investment, bought a house, and, and someone makes a zoning change that might be a bit more extreme than what people may be tolerant of, they get mad. On the flip side, to, to answer your question, you have to balance it. So right before I got on this podcast with you, I met with our uh, council land use division about Great Kills Town in Staten Island. People for a decade have been telling me, do something with Great Kills Town. It's the ghost town. Uh, it's a it's a you know S H I T hole. It's this. It's that. There's no restaurants. It's a you know at night. It's dangerous. It's there's drugs. Do something with Great Kills Town. 
So the council land use division and, and myself, we just put together a slide deck of possible zoning changes to allow for a little bit more density, um, to allow for, you know, first floor commercial, you know, one, two, three floors of, 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 re- of uh, condos, co-ops or apartments, whatever. And it's my job to try to sell the public on that and say, look, you want something different. We want more housing. We want more this, more that. Why can't we do it where this works? And I'll tell you why I feel comfortable doing this. My constituents, they leave Staten Island and they go to New Jersey. And in all these beautiful little towns in New Jersey, around train stations, whether you're in Montclair or or, or Princeton or Rahway or anywhere, around the train stations, they've allowed more dense development to happen. So if people are willing to leave Staten Island to go to a town in Jersey where that's already the case, then in my you know, political calculation, I, I think this might be something that Staten Islanders tolerate. So that's, that's sort of the, the, the art of politics, right? It's, it's how do you solve big picture issues without alienating the people that you represent that don't want much change? It's, a, it's, a, it's an art. And in terms of the rezoning that Councilmember Velasquez supported, I don't have the vote in front of me, but I imagine that was something that you and your colleagues supported once she supported it? I, I believe so. I don't remember the top of my head, but I'm, I'm assuming we, mm-hmm. we probably did. I, I believe in member difference. And, and this goes back to the part one mm-hmm. argument where, where we need more devolved government. I am the only person that represents my 170,000 people at the city and county level. So I, I do believe in member deference. Whether that ends up with a positive result, as I would like to see, or a negative result, uh, I think that we are the closest to the ground elected official in the city of New York and should have that power. The city council was probably going to approve this rezoning if she even if she opposed it. Right. This was going to be a situation where it was looking like the the council might actually override member deference. So she was able to negotiate some of the deal to be a little bit different, as always happens in a lot of. these. Yes. And, and, I, and I disagree with that. Uh, I, I believe would. member deference should be overcome when we have to make certain citywide choices. Um, you know, if we're uh, going to expand but all of these developments locally right? are citywide choices. Yeah, I mean, I, again, it's it's the balance, though, for yeah. what what should be a citywide concern versus what should be a neighborhood concern. I'm not saying there's not I'm not saying that there's a fine line there, a, a clear delineation between what should be a citywide issue. But I'll give you some examples. If you know, MSG is coming up, right? Uh, sort of mm-hmm. a local issue. But what MSG is the entertainment hub for concerts, sports teams, et cetera. It is it is a citywide arts and entertainment institution. You know, that that might be one where member deference is not the top priority, although, you know, Eric Botcher is I'm sure he's, I know for a fact he's in negotiations. He's talking to MSG. He's trying to get the best outcome for his community. And that's great. Um, but that's an example. An airport is an example. You know, the closing of Rikers and the siting of those jails. Yeah. That's an example of things that are going to be citywide grand issues that that can't just be allowed to be focused on member deference. Yeah. No, I mean, listen, a lot of those things make sense as broader citywide uh, topics than one, you know, smaller to medium scale development in a certain district. But when you get those developments across the city, they do add up to a citywide, a citywide issue, right, of, of a lack of housing production. And this question that you get out of devolving city government, I mean, again, we're in a situation where given member deference in the way that local city council members negotiate these rezonings that that power is largely devolved 
I, but, but, you know, I, and I don't think that the problem, though, is the actual devolution of government. I mean, if you look at, I think, Tokyo has something like 50 mayors or whatever the equivalent is uh, of the broader Tokyo metro area. I think um, London has 50 councils that have uh, land use powers uh, for, for, to a large extent. I don't think that giving more power to the elected official is bad in and of itself. But I did start by saying there has to be the balance. Like the balance has to be what people in that neighborhood, you know, would accept. Is um, we could we could talk about that. But so so ba- I mean, basically, in this district, Councilmember Velasquez is going to talk about why she came to a yes on this rezoning. The fact that we need to add housing all across the city. It's good for the district overall. It's economic development. It's more affordable housing, et cetera. And her opponent is going to say. The district doesn't want this. This is bad for the district. Uh, you didn't listen to your constituents and the voters are going to decide. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that pretty much sums it up. Yeah. I mean, but and and as someone who wound up supporting her and supporting this, you don't have any issues supporting her opponent who's who's taking her to task for this one decision. No, because the, the ultimate arbiter are the voters, right? I mean, that that's just the reality that we all have to live in. And here we have one of the few places where people are going to vote based on an issue that's affecting their life. And the last thing we should be doing is criticizing the process for having voters who are angry taking retribution against elected official. That's yeah, part I mean, and parcel to democracy. Absolutely. Councilmember Velasquez has to, of course, sell her decision to the voters, as you were talking about. All right. We're we're quickly going over time here. Let me throw a few quick things at you for quicker uh, things here. Low walks uh, on the beach. Uh, Council member Vernikov, District 48 in Brooklyn. She flipped the seat, although, you know, there's not a huge difference uh, between, you know, the conservative Democratic representation to Republican uh, representation here. You can obviously uh, differ with me on that and, and point anything out here. But she's facing a Democrat in this general election. Is that anything that Republicans easy are win. worried about there? Easy win. Okay. No, easy, easy win. She's going to go on to be uh, uh, a, a council member for the next uh, six years. There's several Queens districts where people are saying, oh, maybe council member Ong, maybe council member Lee, maybe council member Shulman are vulnerable. Are there any Queens districts that you think other Queens districts that you think yeah, are look, in play? Look, I, I think out of all those, uh, probably Linda Lee. Uh, is the most vulnerable. It's it's mm-hmm. still an uphill race. Uh, I happen to to know and like Bernie Chow. He's someone who uh, uh, is closely tied with with Rob Ort, the Senate Minority Leader, and and he, he works pretty hard for him. And he's uh, a, a massively community minded individual and decent person. So uh, you know, happy to support him. That's it's an uphill race. Twenty three in Eastern Queens. Uh... Very, very interesting district. There. Against so, okay, against so. Lynn, um, uh, you know, I, I haven't met. I believe the gentleman's name is Danny Mayo. I, he hasn't asked for support. I don't know. Um, hasn't he asked for to, support. He has not. So oh, if, if you wow. know, if uh, at this He's, stage in the game, I'm not sure what we could really do for him anyway. But um, it just it, it was not a seat on my radar. Uh huh. Well, if he's if he's listening, he should get in touch with you. I would say yep. that's uh, that's Lynn Shulman in District 29 in Queens. Um, all right, so. A few other interesting ones to keep an eye on in Queens. Any other races you want to throw out there before we move on, City Council? I mean, I think we've sort of touched on the roughly half a dozen that could be in play here. I, I think those are the most significant uh, where there's a, a good chance of flipping or holding. Um, like I said, the, the marquees are going to be the two uh, districts that feature incumbents or former elected officials. Is um, 
Is there any Democrat sitting elected Democrat that we haven't talked about where you think their constituents are particularly unhappy with the representation they're getting? Yeah. And, and, and again, I would have to take responsibility for the failure of not getting a, a good enough candidate that could raise uh, the money to get on the ballot, et cetera. But I could I, I could venture to say that you just look at the math and find some of the more left leaning council members uh, whose general election victory, uh, if they had one, was, you know, 2000 votes, uh, 3000 votes, et cetera. Uh, those are the ones that 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 we should have been targeting better. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I take responsibility for that. I'm, I'm assuming some of the county chairs should also share in some of that responsibility. But I'm, I'm not going to shirk and say, yeah, I did a great job there. OK, that's interesting. We like when people public officials and and top, you know, political officials uh, come here or anywhere else and actually take a little bit of responsibility that where they could have done something better or differently. That's uh, that's refreshing sometimes. Um, before I get you out of here, uh, I do want to ask you with you're going to secure this last two years on the council for 2025. Are you thinking about any potential political race or even 2024 or 2026? No, no. Uh, you know, I'm just looking forward to serving out my term. This is not a, a canned answer. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not uh, plotting to run for something or right now. I'll never say never. But um, I, I don't think uh, the, the private sector would be too bad of a move for me at this stage in my life, at this stage of my career. So I'm not uh, I'm not or, or in government or doing something in government at some point. Uh, I, I, I could probably disclose to you that if Lee Zeldin became the governor, which I know so many of you listeners probably hope for, uh, I, I'm sure I would have been a part of that administration uh, and uh, would have enjoyed uh, maybe even returning to Albany in some capacity and uh, and, and leading the state into a, a recovery mm-hmm. uh, as we had hoped to do. But we'll see. Would you run for mayor in 2025? No, no. Uh, you know, you, you alluded to it earlier. Uh, I, I enjoyed running for public advocate. Uh, it was it was fun. Um, you know, I don't think, uh, frankly, that that uh, I, I could really make a citywide run. Um, so it's not something I'm thinking about. You have a Republican borough president, Vito Fasella. If for some reason he doesn't run for another term, would you look at the BP position? Yeah, maybe. I mean, he's a he's a good friend of mine. You know, as far as I know, he's running and uh, mm-hmm. we uh, work together pretty well. Our families actually are, are close and we're friends and and we enjoy a couple of glasses of uh, wine and some macaroni every now and then on Sundays. We have uh, we have so many other things we could talk about for so long. Part three, Ben, part three. Quick, no, quick, but quickly. <laughs> part three, we'll do uh, yeah down the line. But uh, who, who are you supporting right now in the Republican uh, primary for president? Uh, I mean, I, I think it's Trump's to, to lose at this point, uh, even uh, in spite of the indictments. Uh, I, I think I, I think in an ironic twist, um, the Alvin Bragg indictment of, of Donald Trump is is probably what guaranteed Trump the nomination. Uh, and I say that because, and you know, everyone knows I'm kind of a, a junkie for TV news. Uh, I watch all three major stations, Newsmax. Um, all of them. I, I, I'm addicted to cable news. Not a secret. And but when you had here on cable news, yeah. Often. So it's it, it's fun. Mm-hmm. So so when you have people that I do know personally, like who are who are tried and true um, Democrats. I mean, David Axelrod, the, the the Van Jones of the world. Um, when they're saying that that this is such a weak and stupid uh, indictment, that it almost gives credence to Trump saying, "Look, it's a witch hunt. Look, they're just trying to jam me up. Look, it's it, it's just about getting me out of the race." Alvin Bragg basically gave Donald Trump the opportunity to prove that uh, to the people that he's trying to convince to vote for him in the nomination. 
Well, as we've seen, he was going to do that with 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 any of these, and has done that with any of these. No, um, no, but, but I, I hear I what you're saying I, as I, as Bragg being first, and and some of the questions. And I think I think the federal indictments, if not the one in Georgia, um, you, you just didn't have that same gut reaction from people who are play uh, paid handsomely to analyze political sentiment where, you know, there's a lot of non-disclosure agreements that happen in, in, in New York. Right. Uh, and Michael Cohen is not exactly, you know, uh, a, a champion, honest witness uh, and someone whose name is revered in, 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 the, in the halls of, of honesty. Right. Um, yeah, we, we, we've 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 had a little bit of this Trump conversation in the past, but it's notable to me as someone who you supported him early on in his 2016 run back in 2015 that. You say it's Trump's nomination to lose, but you're not out there endorsing him and supporting him. I mean, my sense and and I haven't read every tweet you've you know sent or, or all of that, but my sense is you've been playing it very cautiously because you you do have a sense that these other charges, at least even if you want to put the brag ones aside, are very serious and there's a lot of evidence to support them. Is that a fair reading? No, of your no, reaction? no. And again, I, I'm I'm going to support. Trump, if he's the nominee, no, no questions asked. Uh, I'll, I'll vote for the Republican nomination, uh, nominee, no matter what. Um, I, I just, I, I just en- really did enjoy uh, being sort of on the national uh, political circuit for a while, um, for for two election cycles. It was a lot of fun, and now I just, I just see myself, I see my career winding down, and and it's. Um, you know, it was always an extracurricular activity, right? It's not in the job description of being a city council member. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of more focused, if you can believe it or not, uh, as the chair of this Republican Council's members and mayors group. Uh, I'm more focused on the Nashville mayor's race with Alice Rowley and, and some other, you know, key um, municipal races around uh, the country. Uh, my Great friend city, uh, by the way. Brian's running in Wichita, uh, so a lot of fun stuff happening. I visited Nashville for the first time recently and, and really enjoyed it. Uh, it's a great time. You just so. analyzed the Bragg indictment. Let's, again, putting that aside, are you really looking at these other indictments? Are you really able to look at those and say, if Donald Trump's the nominee, no questions asked, you'll, you'll support him? And, if, and, if, he, if, if he wins the, the Republican nomination, yes, I'll be voting for him. And, and, and to be honest, I think he wins the Republican nomination. I mean, that seems that's as you yeah. said, it seems like it's clearly his to lose. We have I, one week for the debate. I mean, I don't even know if he's going to show up or that he needs to. Oh, it seems very unlikely. Why would he mm-hmm. why would he you know, allow allow for that uh, you know chance to be sort of attacked by Chris Christie and even Mike Pence? You, you don't feel like you you owe sort of a, a public reconciliation there. Donald Trump sent a mob after his vice president. He tried to overturn a, a fair, you know, Ben, I'm not going to January 6th is my friend. <laughs> so, so, but you, but you don't think you, there's like any way in which you should sort of reconcile for people, how you could, how you could but hold those positions. I am accountable to the voters. I'm on the ballot. You know, this is probably my eighth time in 10 years. If people mm-hmm. don't like what I've said or done, they have had ample opportunity to tell me, as they do oftentimes in the supermarkets and Home uh-huh. Depot and stuff like that. Um, so okay. it is what it is, they say. All right. Well, like like we said, uh, we could maybe spend much more part three on that. Staten Island secession. Give us a closing thought on that. 
Where I don't at? understand why the rest of the city won't just let us leave uh, or at least give us the opportunity. Staten Islanders voted 84 percent or something like that uh, in 1989 to study secession. Uh, after it was studied, two thirds of Staten Islanders voted to leave. The economics only make more sense now as more of Staten Island is developed uh, as our, our net digest of taxable real estate is actually higher than most cities. Uh, with a similar 500,000 people. So I think the economics uh, completely makes sense. And if we want to go it alone, uh, we should be allowed to. Is that something you're going to continue to work on? Yeah, I mean, and our current borough president uh, is is uh, keen on this study. Uh, I have been pushing in the past to, to basically pass legislation to require the city to study it. Um, this, uh, with, this with our new borough president, who has uh, essentially agency on his own, uh, that could potentially contract with uh, an entity or consulting group uh, to come up with the study of, of basically how much revenue uh, could be generated at equal terms with what we're generating now. I mean, that, that's mm-hmm. sort of the question. We can't predict what the government of Staten Island would, would be like uh, or what they would do or how much they would spend because none of us are elected representatives to the new city of Staten Island. So there's, there's definitely a, a variable out there. But the mm-hmm. the issue is going to be how much revenue can we uh, collect without you know crushing people, and how much debt would we owe the city of New York? That's that's the big question. New York City Council Member Joe Borelli is a Republican of Staten Island. He is the minority leader in the city council. He leads the six-member GOP conference there. He's also a leader of the eight-member Common Sense Caucus in the council. Thanks for all the time and the conversation in this two-part podcast. If you missed. Part one, go listen to it as soon as you can. Uh, we got into a lot of stuff more on the sort of government side of things and a bit more focused on the politics side of things here in part two. City Council Member Joe Borelli, thanks for all the time. Appreciate it. Thank you, Ben.